the whole stigma surrounding addiction to really focus on it. You have a crazy story from what I've heard. <laughs> um, and the way like you got brought out here to like treatment, like through intervention and that kind of being weird. Um, and I kind of just wanted to see what, what your story is with, with stigma and addiction. All right. Well, <clears throat> I can start out saying like, when it comes to addiction, especially in today's society, how things are because of the fentanyl epidemic. Yeah. You know, it's really, it's really become a forefront to like everything that's going on because I mean, we're, we're, we're calculating what over 110,000 deaths this year, just from overdoses. You know, I've been, I was in active addiction for 25 years and I remember a point in time where, you know, the people that died were like the guys that went to jail for six months. They would come home. They would try to do the same amount that they did before they went to jail and you know, they would overdose and die, you yeah. know, so like death wasn't, it, it, it was there, but it's not as prevalent as it is today, especially in mid, middle America, you know? So like for me, like, so not understanding like what addiction is, like I grew up in, in the late eighties, early nineties, where like we had the dare program and like the dare program told us like, just say no, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like that whole thing, like just say no, like, like it's that easy, you know? So like we were, in that era, in that generation of people, we were told that that's what it was. Like, it was like, like we had this power of choice and we can just say no. Yeah. You know, growing up where I grew up, because, you know, I grew up in Philadelphia and I grew up in a neighborhood in Philadelphia called Kensington where, you know, drugs are rampant. You know, like I, I young, being a young kid walking out of my house and going to, going to school like it was normal to see people smoking crack and shooting heroin and you know or, or like us going down to the jersey shore for the weekend and coming back and you know squatters being in our house for the weekend like that mm. was normal. you know what i mean so so it's like you've seen what drugs did but you didn't you know but you go to school and you had these dare programs and they tell you, you know drugs is just like just say no just don't do them. And then they would show us what drugs looked like, which we already knew. Yeah. But it's like, you know, so, so that was our education on, on, on addiction. Yeah. So all you knew as a kid growing up, it's like, that's what that looks like. Addiction looks like. And then just say no. Yeah. Exactly. That was it. Exactly. Okay. And, that, and that was it. And so, you know, being, being young and growing up in the family I grew up in, you know, uh, I, I'm one of five children, you know, and, so, like, my older siblings, you know, like, we had mom and dad at home. And then, like, at a young age, like, my mom and dad, like, split up. And, you know, and and not really having a safe, stable environment at home, you know, like, I, I sought refuge through running the streets, you know. And then in the streets, it's like, you know, I got the older guys in the neighborhood, like, telling me, like, it's okay to drink. It's okay to smoke weed. It's okay to pop pills, you know. And so, at a young age which I didn't realize, I didn't know I was an addict at a young, at such a young age, you know, and I would put these drugs into my system and then I would do things that I didn't understand that I was doing behind putting drugs in my system. Yeah. You know, like at a young age, like, like popping pills and, and going to steal cars and, and, and committing robberies and stuff. And I didn't understand the consequences of my actions until I started going to jail. When did you, know, you start? When did you start using? You said I was when I started using on a regular basis. I was ten. Ten. It was like smoking weed, drinking every weekend. You know, we would get we would get the old back in the day. We would get the double malt Colt forty fives, 
and we drank the neck of it, and then we dropped two Xanax in there, and then guzzled the thing, and, and we'd be wrecked. And back then, like, you can get three 40s for $5, three blue Xanax for $5, and a, and a neck bag of weed. <laughs> so for $15, like, it was on and popping for them. <laughs> you know, but, like, growing yeah. up poor, we still needed to come up with that $15. So, like, it was yeah. normal for us to, like, sell neck bags of weed and steal cars and, mm-hmm. and rob shit. You know what I mean? So it was and, kind of just like the environment you were in. Definitely. Definitely. And then also you believe that you were kind of born an addict. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, no. I, I wholeheartedly believe it because, like, I see, like, growing up in, in a family I grew up with, like, I got a brother that's five years older than me. And when I was 12 going on 13, he went into the Army. Mm-hmm. And he went in army and he went in intelligence and then he started working for the government and now he owns his own business and he's very successful. He's got a wife, three kids. Um, when he was in army, did a lot of tours over in the Middle East. He'd be gone for like six months. He would come home after seeing a lot of chaos and death yeah. and all that. He would come home and he would take a couple days. He would sit in his basement and drink a little bit of scotch. You know, and then when he was done, he would stop and he would go back to work. And, you know, and he's a very good father. He's he's a pretty good husband. He's a really good son. You know, he's he's capable of having a drink or two and putting it down and then showing up to work the next day. Mm-hmm. Like me, I introduce a substance into my body and it's all chaos is ensuing. Like you as know? soon as you put the first drink ever that you've ever had, you couldn't put it down. Mm-hmm. I want to say it's in, like, or you craved put it, it down. You craved it. Yeah. Because now I know, right. So like, I remember the first time that I ever picked up a drink, I was real young. I was probably about like six or seven years old. And I remember, you know, cause we do a lot of correlation as human beings. Like we'll correlate different like, yeah. things with what's going on in our lives. And I remember being real young and my grandpa was dying from cancer and he was in the house and, and my dad was there and like my dad's whole family was there and everybody was drinking. And I remember doing a shot with my grandpa and I'm like seven, six, seven years old. And like I'm drinking with my dad. And that was one of the nights that I was around my dad and he was fucked up. And he didn't put his hands on my mom and he didn't put his hands on me or my siblings. Yeah. So like when I, when I drink with like my dad or like yeah, I drink, yeah. it's well, all good. Like I'm not going to get... Exactly. You correlate it with like being feeling safe and secure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's and that's as a young kid, that's all I wanted because like it was in the house, like I had to deal with my dad was like very violent, you know, so I had to deal with that in the house. And then outside the house growing up in the inner city of Philadelphia, I mean and Philly's a fighting city. Mm-hmm. You know, and growing up, like, that's, like, that's how you had to earn your stripes, you know? And then I didn't understand, like, because growing up, like, my dad would, uh, would like, beat me and my brother up. And then what well, was crazy, but, like, he would do it, but, like, save somebody else. Like, I remember one time my aunt's boyfriend, you know, he choked me up or something. I was, like, eight or nine years old, and my dad tore him a new ass. You know what I mean? Because, like, that was my dad's thing. Like, yeah, I might fuck you up. But I'm also going to protect you too. Yeah. So I had this false sense of like what love looked like and what yes. safe looked like. You know what I mean? And that's all I really wanted. It's like I wanted a, 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 I wanted a piece of safety. You know, because like I, you would see like watch TV and you know, and I had family that lived down in the suburbs, and I'd see how it was out there, and I'd be like, man, that's this is the life. You know. Mm-hmm. So like, but yeah, so I didn't understand at a young age, like that I correlated getting, getting high with not only safety, but acceptance as well. Yeah. 
you know, and then I go to school and a dare, they would tell us it's a choice. So like in my mind, I thought, you know, I'm young, I'm having fun. Yeah. You know, but I didn't realize that when I was young, I did things and the consequences of those things ultimately affected the rest of my life. You know, being catching felony charges as a teenager and going to jail at a really young age, you know, it, it wound up affecting. So like, so like when, when, you know, I became a young man, like over 18, you know, like I couldn't go into the military, you know, I couldn't get certain jobs. I didn't think that, you know, I, I'd be able to get an education. So like I became comfortable and I didn't understand I was an addict at that point either. And I didn't understand what addiction was. So like, I just kept chalking it up to like, I'm young and I'm having fun. I'm yeah. young and I'm having fun. Cause you know? in, in a way, like normal people like people who aren't addicts like can just go yeah. drink for a weekend yeah. and like they think it's like yeah i'm a per- kid yeah. having fun yeah and show up to work on monday yeah <laughs> like me like i'm not going to work and i'm running until i go back to prison yeah like that's where you know and that 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 was the thing and then when i started going to prison that's where i found my safety at you know because i would go to prison and like all the stories you hear about prison like it's really not like that you know it's what is not, it like, like I mean, it's it's one of those things, like, if it's all in how you carry yourself, mm-hmm. you know, and in, in the state of Pennsylvania, being from Philadelphia and being from where I'm from, like, when I walk into a prison, like, it's automatically, like, it's automatically, like, oh, he's he's okay. You know, he's from the neighborhood. He's from the city. Yeah. Like, he, he's, he's good, you know? So, like, I would go into prison and, like, yeah, crazy shit would happen, but... You know, it wasn't like I was never, like, a prey to anybody. You know, but I, I always carried myself, you know, I, I never carried myself as, like, a victim. Mm-hmm. You know, so, like, people couldn't come and victimize me. You know what I mean? But but I found safety in that. And then I seen how those actions correlated, how I acted on the streets. Because, like, on the streets, and when I'm getting high, I become a predator. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and where I come from, it's a whole, like, look, like, Kensington is a whole different world. If there's nothing like the closest comparison that people can have is Skid Row, but you know, for anybody's ever been to Skid Row, like you know, Kensington is Skid Row times a million. Really? Yeah. You know, because it's like it's not, it's not that you just have people out there getting high, but you got on a daily basis there's people getting stabbed, shot, robbed, all these things that are going on and they're happening right there, like. It's normal in Kensington to, like, walk up the block and see a cop on this corner. And then, like, you know, 20, 30, 40 feet away, you see somebody, like, smoking crack and shooting dope. Yeah. You know, it's normal to see, like, cops, like, a cop cruiser sitting on a corner. And right across the street, like, people are having a shootout. Yeah. You know, like, the cops, people aren't afraid of the cops. You know what I mean? So, it's, like, so it's one of those things, like, it's it's the, the chaos that goes down there. And it's so, it's so ingrained in that area that like I I don't know if there's ever going to be a point in time where it's not going to be like you don't think it can ever turn back? I don't think so. I think it's way too far gone, you know. And just from being, you know, I, I remember being a little kid and running around those streets, and it wasn't as bad as it is today, but it was still bad, you know. And that's a whole nother thing, like when you get into the politics and 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 the yeah. city structures and all that, like how it's it's designed, like like it's like anything in life, like you gotta have good in order to have good, you gotta have bad. Yeah, I agree. You know what I mean? So so they try and keep it contained. To a certain area. Yes. You know? Yeah, so I've like, heard, I heard, not to get into the politics, but I, 
but to get into them yeah i heard that skid row it's like it's really they they built it like that like early yeah. early yeah. la yeah to keep it contained in that area and they're okay with that yeah like if you cross a certain line like they're like no you have to they push them back that way towards mm. skid row yeah and and they used to like in kensington they did that like back back in the early 2000s it was like kensington and somerset and then like they clean that up and it moves up to kensington and cambria and then they clean that up and then it moves up to kensington and allegheny and then it yeah. goes back down to can and it's still all fucked up but like that's what they do they'll push people just down a couple blocks you know but yeah. it's still infested like you know philadelphia is known as it has a biggest open air drug market in the, in the entire world I definitely the country more than likely in the entire world. There's no yeah. bigger open air drug market. I mean, you walk there's block after block after block where they're selling anywhere from, you know, a quarter of a million to a million dollars worth of drugs a day, Damn. all in nickels and dimes. That's crazy. You know what I mean? So like, so so that's when when it does when the politics get a part of it. Like, there's a lot of money out there. Mm -hmm. You know, you're talking a good you know, 10 to 15 corners that are pushing close to, you know, on an average a half million dollars a day. That's a lot of money. Yeah. You know, you're talking about, about $5 million a day just in commerce going through that area. So, you know, of course, money plays a part in it. Yeah. What do you think? I feel like <laughs> it's, it's set up, dude. It's rigged. It is. It is. It is. It's like they, a lot of people, like, I really do believe addiction is a disease that lies in our head. And I feel like it's just... The whole money, like every, a lot of people are money hungry and they just yeah. profit off of addicts who can't, who literally feel like they can't live without a substance. Oh yeah. So, so we become a commodity. Yeah. That's our stigma is that now we're a commodity, right? So when we're getting loaded to the, to the alcohol companies, to the tobacco companies, you know, to the dope boys out on the corner, we're a commodity, you know, we're, we're a way for them to make money, yeah. you know, and then we get, and then. You know, like like in my situation, right? So it was in early 2018. I just came home from a parole violation hit upstate mm -hmm. in, in Pennsylvania. I come home, the girl I was with, she was still in prison. Um, You know, I, I never thought about, like, not getting loaded. So, like, as soon as I got out, that's the first thing I did. I started getting loaded right back out there on the streets. You know, and these people, they come and they approach me and they say, hey, we're, we're going to do this documentary about the opiate epidemic in, in Kensington. And it's like, there's been a fucking opiate epidemic in Kensington since the late 70s. Like, this mm -hmm. isn't new to us, you know. And at the time, I was on a run from state parole. So when they approached me, I'm like, there's no way. I'm yeah. You know what I mean? Like, no way. TV, no. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm cool. So then, and then she got out and... I remember that night we were on we were at one corner and and I shot her in her neck with some dope, and she goes out, and I started hitting her with arcane, and that was the first time like I prayed to God, I was like God, if if you wake her up, I'll do whatever it takes to get her out of here, and after like the third or fourth arcane, she she pops up, and that next morning I call, her, I was like, look, like I'll do it, but she's got to be involved, mm -hmm. you know, and um, and then a couple of days later, he started following us around with cameras and stuff, you know. And uh, and during the course of them following me around, I went out and getting locked up. And I go to court, and initially the judge wanted to send me back to prison, but then I was doing that, and, mm -hmm. you know, I had an opportunity to come out here to treatment, right? 
And all of a sudden, the judge let me out. He let me come out here and go to treatment. And I remember in Philadelphia, I walk out of the courthouse, which is down like 15th of Market. And I walk out, and I'm right there on Market Street, right where Independence Hall is, right in the middle of Philadelphia. And all these cameras come swarming up to me, right? Yeah. And, and I see my sister, my niece, and, um, and I start walking away. I'm like, fuck this. I ain't doing this. Like, I just wanted to get loaded. And... My niece comes up and she's like, Uncle Bill, like, please just like chill and listen to these. Mm -hmm. You know, and she saved my life and I did. I stopped and I listened to them and they were like, hey, you know, the it's TV show intervention. Um, You know, we're going to send you and her to a treatment center out in California. And I was like, all right, bet, let's go. Yeah. You know, and, and the plan, and, and my plan wasn't like to come out here and get and stay clean. Mm -hmm. The plan was like, all right, I'm going to go out there and get my weight up. I'll check it out to see, see how the heroin is on Skid Row. <laughs> and then, you know what I mean? I'll make my way back to mm -hmm. Kensington. Just and, like hang out. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, you know, God seemed fit to show me a different path, you know. Mm -hmm. And then it's like I came out here. And the reason why I'm saying this, it ties into that. You know, when I come out here and I go into this treatment center, that's a luxury treatment. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Big multi million dollar house. Um, you know, the the high paying therapist. You know, all that uh, stuff. Three meals a day, yeah, yeah, all that, all, yeah. Great, chef, all that stuff. And and every, but every night, they're taking us to these 12-step meetings, right? Yeah. And I started, and I started listening at these 12-step meetings, and, um, you know, and it changed for me. You know, and, and, and I think that was, like, the first time in my life, like, like I had hope, right? Mm -hmm. And then I started learning about the disease of addiction, you know, like the stigma, like, oh, that, that addict's like, we can just stop. Like, it's a choice. Yeah. Like, it's not. It's not. It's not a choice. And, and I wish it was. If it was a choice, like, we wouldn't have to have treatment. We wouldn't have to have recovery. Mm -hmm. If it was a choice. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because I didn't, I didn't, I never, like, who chooses to be living on, living on Kensington Ave, you know, while people are, are, are looking at you like you're not a human being. You know, who yeah. chooses not to shower for months at a time? Yeah. Who chooses to walk around with open sores on their bodies? And, you know, who chooses, like, what girl chooses to hop in and out of cars for five hours a piece to get the next? Who 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 would choose that? But the thing is, like, as addicts, once we put one in us, like, we lose all power of choice, right? Mm-hmm. It's like no. not us anymore making no. the choice. No, no, it's not. And then and then we get into recovery, we start learning who we actually are. Yeah. You know, and then we gotta figure out do we like this person? You know, and that's a hard thing. You know, a lot of people, a lot of families, like they send their family members to treatment and they automatically one, they think, Oh, they're they went to treat they're good. They're, they're good. Yeah. They're, they're good. good. <laughs> you know what I mean? And then yeah. this person comes back and the thing is like, Yeah, you stop getting loaded. But you're still stuck with yourself. Yeah. You know, man, how do we fix ourselves, right? And then, and then that's where we become a commodity, right? Because, like, it's like it's like they basically tell you, like, nobody gets it on their first go around. So when you walk into treatment and they say, oh, out of 100 people, only, you know, one of you are going to stay clean. So you're you're automatically you're all your hopes are dashed from the yeah. Door. Why do they give you that? Why do they throw that statistic at you? Well, it's I mean, one, it's real, and yeah. number two, you know, treatment's a business again. So not only are we are commodity in our addiction, we we also become a commodity in our recovery. Yeah, 
You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like, so it's like, especially people in your, see, so like I came out here through intervention. So I didn't have, I didn't have private insurance, mm-hmm. right? I didn't have my, my, I, I don't think I ever had health insurance, but yeah. you know what I mean? But so, so like I didn't have my mom and dad's insurance to cover, you know, an expensive treatment, right? I didn't have mom and dad's mm-hmm. insurance to cover my, my outpatient after treatment that's going to help pay for my, my living. I didn't have yeah. that, right? But like your your age and your age group, like you guys had that until the age of 26. So these treatment centers, they see that and they're like, here, here goes our commodity. So we don't have to put the effort in, you know, because we got them between the age of 18 to 26. Like, we'll have them, you know, I mean, this day and age, it's not, it's not crazy to hear somebody say, oh, I've been to 30 treatments. Yeah. 40 or 50. Yeah. You know, because you got the insurance, you're a commodity, right? So people that work in the the treatment field to them, it's like, so why am I going to put the work in? Why am I going to put the effort in? Mm Mm-hmm. So it's like one of the things, like, like, so we're set up to fail. Yeah. I'm not saying treatment doesn't yeah. work. It is. It's like, yeah, it's not that it doesn't work. It's not just like, it's not like treatment offers you that, that place to kind of just like get clear minded and kind of like, look at yourself. Oh, like, oh, I'm feeling feelings now. Like, this is weird. Provides you a little bit of insight and like beginner therapy, you know, like they can't get so deep and crazy just like in that 30 day period. Mm-hmm. So like you're you and 30 days isn't shit. It goes by so quickly mm-hmm. and um, they kind of don't give you that unless you really do like outpatient, like get in a program like you kind of and just like go fly back. If you don't do that and fly back home, you're yeah. kind of like not yeah. left with any resources and then you're going to go back to what you know. Left to our left to our own devices. Yes. What are we going to do? We're going to do what we know. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And that's the thing. So how are you going to break a, a, a habit-forming like situation? And you're like, how are you going to break that in 30 days? Yeah. You know, so it's like, so we come to these treatment centers. And like, it's exactly what you said. In 30 days, we can't, we can't get to the bottom of anything. And it's like, and, and it's like, I, I fully believe what treatment, the, the best thing treatment does is it gives you... It gives you some space in between where you're at and your last use. Yeah. You know, and hopefully in that space, you you find recovery. Mm-hmm. You know, and then because once you find recovery and you start doing the work, is that you start uncovering all that shit. All that shit. You know what I mean? Like, I, I always say, like, there's four pillars on why people get loaded. It's through thoughts, feelings, actions, and behaviors. It's either one or a combination of those four things of why we continue to use, mm-hmm. you know? So it's like identifying those things. And then ultimately that's when we start the process of recovery. But, you know, but, but then we look at the stigma of it. It's like, you're a junkie. You don't deserve to get better, you know? Well, you know, and then we start, and then we start classifying as a disease and it's like, oh, well, you know, and then you have these arguments, oh, diabetes versus addiction. Yeah. <laughs> How's it correlate? How's it the same? Well, you know, addictions just like diabetes. Like instead of us doing insulin, we do recovery. Mm-hmm. You know, and if we don't keep up on our recovery, our 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 spiritual defenses to that next drink or drug is going to be down. You know, we're not going to have any defense towards it. Just like if you have diabetes and you eat too much sugar. You know, you're going to go into a diabetic coma because you don't have the insulin to even you out. Yeah. 
you know, that's how it's looked at, like a disease, you know, and, and the disease of addiction is broken down. You know, it's, it's, you got the physical, the mental, and the thing that science or any of these thing, any of these, you know, educated people, they can't get to the root of is the spiritual nature of our disease. Yeah. You know, it didn't make sense to me for a really long time yeah. that like addiction, a disease. Yeah. I was like, I'm not sick. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I feel right. fine. Yeah. <laughs> like it didn't yeah. make sense to yeah. me. It took a really long time to like wrap my head around. Mm-hmm. Um, and then even still today, like not thinking about like addiction being a disease for a while. I'm like, wait, how is it a disease again? You know, but like it, it yeah. really does make sense. Like you look at it as like, it's really internal sickness. You know Definitely. what I mean? Like Definitely. not having a real way to like, not having learned a way to cope with life and feelings and our yeah. thoughts. And a lot of people who have like mental, like mental illness, like mental health disorders tend to also turn to substances. Yeah. Yeah. Because well, like well, mental health and, and, and substance use disorder go hand in hand. Yeah, for sure. It goes hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. It's just impossible. And it's like, you know, but, but then it's like, but then it's like misdiagnosing people with mental health. Right. So it's like, this is the thing. Like somebody like me, like I don't suffer. My mental health isn't as crazy as like some other people. Right. Mm -hmm. But the thing is like when I first, when I first get clean, like, of course I'm going to be fucking depressed. And of course (laughs) I'm going to have anxiety. Like, like you just took my fucking solution away. You just took, like, I love shooting heroin. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, they're, like, a lot of people don't talk about that either. In the beginning, like, as addicts, we go through this grieving period to where we got to grieve, like, that person who we thought we were going to die as. Yeah. You know, and then rise above and become this whole new person. And for me, that was, like, the craziest transition for me because it's, like, if you look at my life and my resume of, like, going to jail at a young age, um, being in and out of jail, being from where I'm from, you know, growing up in the family I grew up in, my father was an addict, the alcoholic that died in alcoholic's death. You know, a lot of people in my family have died in alcoholic and addict's death. You know, it's so so when you look at my resume of like of my life, like, oh yeah, no shit. No shit that I wound up becoming a junkie. Like, what else was I supposed to do? Yeah. You know, compared to, you know, like say like a soccer mom from Calabasas. You know, that that drinks three boxes of wine a night. So how how do me and her identify with each other, right? Yeah. And it's finding it's fine that commonality. You wanna know how me and her identify with each other? And it's like what and I do this all the time. You know, and it's like cause I'll say to that soccer mom, like, you know when you're when you're in your active alcoholism and you go in a bathroom by yourself and you look in a mirror and you fucking hate that person you look at? I get it. Mm. I get it. Don't change. You know what I mean? It doesn't change. That feeling does not change from one person to the next. Like, we all have that feeling. Yeah. You know, and all we're trying to do is we're trying to subside that feeling. Trying to become okay with living with that feeling. You know, and it's like, you know, and then we try and get help. And then we come into this place. Like I said, we're a commodity in our our active using. And then we're this commodity when we're trying to get clean and sober, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like we go to these treatment centers and we're looked at, you know, and, and, and mind you, so I work in treatment. Mm-hmm. You know, I work and, and and I work in these places that are considered, you know, private pay insurance, treatment centers, right? Now, it's it's like I say to these people all the time, 
the thing that sucks is like you are you're looked at like like you're you're only as good as your insurance policy that's how people mm. want to look at you you know what i mean like have a shitty insurance policy and try to go to one of these like a list places like you can't right but then like what i found out instead of complaining about the problem i'm going to do something about the problem so i started working in the field of treatment right mm. and i started out at the bottom and, and i've slowly and i'm slowly but surely working my way up right because i want to try and evoke change right because like today like like that that whole that whole thing like choice like today i have a choice right mm -hmm. so it's like once once i stop getting loaded and i do some work i regain the power of choice back right like if i go and i go and get high today it's because i chose yeah that. you chose that but, I chose to get but once you do it, it's not a choice anymore. Yeah, yeah, but but yeah, but once I put that once I put that substance in my body, mm -hmm. I have no power over my actions. And like I said, thoughts, feelings, actions, and behaviors, right? So like, so I got to always be mindful of those four things, you know. And that's like something that I learned in recovery through the twelve step process was like, you know, thoughts turn into feelings. Feelings turn into action, or feelings turn into behaviors, behaviors turn into actions, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, if I can catch it at the thought, so it's like, you know, I, I, I remember, like, so I, so I had a little bit of time clean, and, and, and when I first got clean, I had, like, 10 months, right? I remember writing down the things that would make me want to get loaded again, right? And I wrote down these five things. I said, if my mom died, if one of my siblings died... If one of my nieces or nephews died, if I lost that relationship, or if I lost my job. If any of those things happen, like, I'm going to get loaded. And at 10 months clean, you know, I get a phone call. Well, well, no. Yeah, I get a phone call on a Friday night. That girl that I was with, that I loved, that I would do anything for, I thought I was going to spend the rest of my life with. I get a phone call from her, her telling me that, hey, you know what? Like, I, I'm with somebody else, and I don't want to be in our relationship anymore. I was devastated. You know, I was hurt. And and through that, you know, I, I allowed that feeling to turn into a behavior and an action. And through that action, like, I went on losing my job. You know, because, like, I went crazy and, and, and that showed my ass, you know. And, and um, you know, but these men that I met in recovery, like, they didn't give up on me, right? So, like, they had me come and sleep on their couch, right? And um, I went and I slept on this guy's couch and I was there. I was there for about 10 days and, and, and I found another job right away. And um, it was like my first week on this job and, and I get a phone call from back home. It's my mom saying that they found my little sister dead in a, in a, in a recovery house in Philadelphia. Mm. You know, she, she, you know, she decided to do one more and she didn't survive. You know, so like these three things, like like those five things I wrote down, like in a ten day period, three of those things happened. Damn. You know what I mean? But like, but the crazy thing is, like, I didn't get loaded though, right? I just kept pushing and I kept pushing. But what happened is, like, is 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 I allowed all that shit that we get through getting clean. I allowed that shit to to block what was really going on. Like, I wasn't telling people how like. I would lay down in bed at night, cry, cry myself to sleep, like just wanting to shoot dope because I couldn't deal with the pain of all, all I was going through. You know, I didn't share that with anybody. I didn't tell anybody that stuff. I kept it to myself, you know, and, and I would show up and I would go to these meetings and then the TV show comes out and now all of a sudden, like, you know, I become this person that like,
like, you know, like I, I, I can open a door for a lot of addicts back home. Mm-hmm. You know, I can help a lot of addicts back home get, get clean, you know, cause like where I come from, we don't have this shit. Recovery. I mean, there's recovery, but like, we don't have the ability to get to recovery because in order to get to recovery, majority of the time, like, like you need stabilization. So you need some type of a treatment. See, like in Philadelphia, if you want to get clean in Philly, right? Say you're homeless out on the streets, right? You've been out there for months homeless. And one morning you wake up and say, you know what? I want to go to treatment. This is how that process looks, right? You go to an assessment center. They have them all throughout the city. There's like five or six of them. You go to this assessment center and, you know, and they put you in this locked room with these hard plastic chairs. And they tell you, look, you're going to be here for the next 24 to 72 hours. Right? In the assessment now, center? In the assessment center. So you're sitting in there, right? And 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 they tell you, like, it's not guaranteed. We're not going to, we can't guarantee we're going to get you in any place. I'll use a small number to make it easy. So say out of 10 people, right? 10 people that show up, maybe seven of them will survive the full time that they're there. Seven of those people are automatically going to get up and walk out the door because once you start getting dope sick and there's there, you could walk out the front door and buy a bag of heroin for five hours and get well, you know, once you get sick, you're not going to sit there and, and you know, you're not going to stay sick. So seven of those people are getting up and walking out. Now out of three people that are left, what's going to happen is two of those people, they're not going to find a place for and then that one last person, let's cut that person in half. Half the person is going to find, they're going to find a detox for them. That other half a person, they're going to tell them the only way that will help you is if you get on some type of maintenance. Mm. So nobody's, nobody's trying to get clean. What is the maintenance about? So it's in, see in Philadelphia, it's mainly, it's mainly uh, methadone. Yeah, there's methadone, suboxone, suboxone, subutex. So, what, like, what so is that about? Morphine. So, like, and you know, and that's the thing too. This is another big stigma: harm reduction, right? Yeah. Real quick, brief lesson: in harm reduction. <laughs> harm reduction started in in, in the late sixties, early seventies, when when the men were coming back from Vietnam, they were coming back with 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 uh habits. You know, mm-hmm. they were hooked on heroin. Um, and then what happened, they would come back and, you know, you got a place like Harlem and Philly and Baltimore and, and cities in Jersey where, you know, her- in Detroit, where in Chicago, where heroin was prevalent, right? So you had these cities. What happens, like people go there, become homeless. They'd start committing crimes in order to get their drugs. So they came up with harm reduction. Harm reduction wasn't, wasn't to reduce harm for the addicts. Harm reduction was to reduce harm to society around the addicts. So then they came up with the with the methadone programs. Methadone program looks like this in Philadelphia is how I know how it looks. Is you go into this one this one facility, you go in there, they get you stabilized on a dose, they they kick you back out into a, a methadone clinic. That methadone clinic, they're open seven days a week. You gotta go there every day to get your dose. Um Three to five days out of out of out of that week, you got to go and you got to sit through like IOP groups for five for yeah about five hour yeah about five hours a day, you know. So like your whole life becomes revolved around this methadone clinic. Mm. 
like anybody, if anybody watches from Philadelphia, you know, in the comments talking about how the methadone clinics are in Philadelphia, it's fucking wild. Yeah. You know, and outside these methadone clinics, you can buy any drug you want under the sun. You know, so it's it's set up for failure. Yeah. And then, you know, years later, you know, they came, they came out with, with Suboxone. You know, and the thing is, like, and, and look, I don't knock, I don't knock MAT. <clears throat> it can save people. What I knock is, like, is that is that they don't have a set formula. You know, like, they'll just, they'll put you on the shit, but they won't get you off the shit. Yeah, because they keep, they'll keep making money. Yeah, exactly. And, and the thing is, like, <clears throat> you know, like, I just had somebody come out, my little cousin. I got her out here from Philly. You know, she's, she's a, she's four foot 11, weighs a hundred. 10 pounds she was on 140 or 120 or 140 milligrams of methadone plus she was doing fentanyl on top of it right mm. i brought her out here and she um i got her to detox i was working at that time we scholarshiped her through there and we we got her off of the maintenance mm -hmm. you know she got totally clean sent her to a sober living. She went to that sober, but during that time, like she started going to 12 step meetings. She got a sponsor. She started working steps. She found, you know, she found that opposite of addiction, you know, and as we know, the opposite of addiction is connection. You know, she finally got the ability to connect because like when, when, when we have a substance in our body, it's hard for us to not only connect with the people around us, but to also connect with that spiritual malady that we suffer from. You know, so once take all the substances out, she's been able to connect to something. I mean, she's she's got six months clean now. You yeah, know what sure. I mean? Yeah. And 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 on top of it, it's not like she's just hasn't. It's not that she just stopped doing drugs. Like you know, when things happen, like it's crazy in recovery, things just start happening out of nowhere, <laughs> right? Like so, they really do. So she just like she got her she got her driver's license back. Yeah, I told her, hey, you need to get your license. She got her driver's license back. She got a job, you know, she's doing for herself. Like in six months, she's done more in the six months of recovery than she's done in all the time. She's tried getting clean before. Yeah. And it's because I feel like out here we have, we kind of have a system that works. You know what I mean? With the community that we're a part of in recovery out here. And it, it does, it works, you know, and, and we have the numbers and we have the statistics to prove that it works what we do. Yeah. You know, and, um, and it is, and, and it's like, and now like, so the thing like I want to do with life is like, is like, I want to make that bigger than just like what we had this community we have here. You yeah. know, I want people, cause look, like when, when I came out here, if, if I didn't find hope, like I wouldn't have stayed, you know what I mean? Cause like, look, like we, we're coming off the streets. We're coming from trap houses, abandoned houses, mm -hmm. coming from living in our cars, sleeping on the sidewalks. Like, you know, if, if, if I'm coming into treatment and you're not getting, you're not like directing me into some type of a hope for something better what the fuck's the point of doing it? Yeah. You know what I mean? So it's like doing things like this, like seeing like, you know, like my story is a big one. Like I, I don't have any formal education, you know, I, I prison streets, you know what I mean? Yeah. That's all I know. 
I mean, I, I've been out here for a couple of years, even though, so, so then like what happened after my sister and that stuff died, I stayed clean for a while. And then like a year, a little over a year later, you know, my niece that, that saved my life that day, she's driving home from work and she gets into a car accident and dies. Damn. You know what I mean? And, and, and I just had like, but what happened is during that time, I disconnected from, from my community. I disconnected from, you know, I, 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 I put cracks all on my foundation, mm. you know, and that shit crumbled and I had no defense towards that next stroke. So like I saw it out and it wasn't even when I relapsed, it wasn't to get loaded. Like I just wanted to die. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And, and it was like one of those things like, and for some weird reason, I got loaded for almost a year and I didn't OD once. It's like, what the fuck? So, so then my whole perspective had a shift. You know, and I had to understand, like, you know, my with, with my sister and my niece, like, they died, I didn't. You know, so so I had to really, like, get to the nitty-gritty of things of, like, look, there's a purpose behind everything. You know, and if I'm not fulfilling my purpose or if I'm not chasing my purpose, then then I, I might as well move back to Philly and be on Kensington Ave getting loaded. But my purpose is to one day be able to go down there and, you know, those people that I care about dearly, you know, I mean, because, like, like, you can go on YouTube. Like, if you go on YouTube and you, you put down Kensington Ave and all those videos they have of down there, majority of people you see in those videos are people that I know. Really? Yeah. Like, and it fucking, it hurts, man. It hurts. Like, like, like when, when, when I go and I, and, and I buy my new car and I got this really good paying job and I walk into the nice house that I live in and lay in that bed and, and, and like, I'm happy, but then, you know, and, and I go and I work at these upscale treatment centers and, um, you know, like I was just working at a place and we had like a shit ton of open beds, right? And I walk into work and we have one facility where we got six empty beds and then another facility where there's three empty beds. So I'm looking at nine beds and I go home and it's like, and one of my homies from back home hit me up and he's like, bro, like I, I just, I just want to fucking die, bro. Like I just want to die. Like I'm so tired of shit. Like I just want help. You know what I mean? And I'm like, and there's nothing I can do. There's nothing I can do. Yeah. And then I go to this place and there's like nine open beds. Like, what the fuck? Like, what the fuck? Like, this shit don't make sense. You know what I mean? So it's like, so I know what my purpose is, is that like those phone calls, I want to turn those phone calls from me just like, instead of me just saying, hey, bro, like, I love you. I care about you. Like, hang in there. I want those phone calls to turn into me being able to like, all right, you're ready. Get, yeah. Get your ass. Bro, out boom. Here. I got plane ticket right now. Yeah. Go, go, go down to Philly International. I got a plane ticket yeah. waiting for you. Hop on a plane. I got you, bro. Like I, that's for me, that's going to be success. Mm-hmm. Like that's what success to me doesn't look like a million dollar house or, you know, a hundred thousand dollar car or any, like, I, I don't care about any of that shit or, you know, or a six figure year job. Like that's not success. Success is when like, I'm able to like reach back and like all my homies that, that are still out there, that have no hope and have no desire to get clean because there's no hope for me to be able to be that hope and desire for them one day. Like that's success for me. Yeah. You know what I mean? I want to evoke change in this, you know, and, 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 and this stigma of like, you know, addicts are just pieces of shit and addicts are just fucking, you know, scum of the earth and, and they just take up space. Like that's not fucking true. Like it's not true. Like you, you know, 
like I challenge anybody that has that point of view, I challenge you to go to a place like Skid Row or Kensington Ave or the Tenderloins in San Francisco. I saw the or, or go up dude. go up to Third and Pike up in Seattle and go to these areas where where it's a large population of addicts and fucking sit down and talk to these people. And realize how fucking smart these people are, how talented these people are. I remember this guy Billy out on Kensington Ave. I'll never forget this dude. And what he would do, right? This is his whole hustle. He would he would have a whole big ass box box of chalk, right? And he would catch somebody at the corner, and he'd watch them walk up. And as he's looking at them, he would just be on the sidewalk, just doing all the shit on the side. <laughs> and by the time that person got to him, it was a full portrait of that That's person on awesome. the sidewalk. You know, people would tip him. Like, this dude was so artistically talented, it wasn't even fucking funny. That's crazy. Like, I'm talking about from a block away, he would look at somebody and be able to put their whole portfolio, like, their whole thing, the whole portrait. By the time they got to me, it would be done. And people walk up and they would, like, you know, I mean, like, it's not even just the talent of his art. It's just, like, the emotion that he would evoke out of people. Like, like somebody's having a bad day and see somebody do that and, like, just see, like, somebody cry because somebody cared enough about them to do something nice for them. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it is, like, like, so it's, like, all this shit that, like, the people out there don't deserve anything better than what they got is fucking bullshit. You know, and, like, me, like, I was not a good addict. I was not a good addict. Like, I robbed people. Me neither. <laughs> I did a lot of bad things to people. I didn't yeah. go to prison for being a good dude. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? But they gave me the chance and opportunity to change things. And, like, I can I can wholeheartedly say today, like, I'm, I'm a good dude. I think you're like, a good dude. You know, and, and, and I strive to be. I, I make mistakes, and, and I fall short. You know, but, like, today, like, I admit when I fall short. Yeah, we wouldn't be human if we didn't make mistakes. Yeah, yeah. you know, and it's, like, I care about people. Like, like after losing my sister, how I lost my sister. You know, my sister was in a program, and um, I paid for the, for the treatment center she was in and or for, for the recovery house she was in. And uh, my mom would go and pick her up in the morning, take her to work with her. And my mom showed up one morning. It was, like, probably, like, Nine or ten o'clock in the morning, my mom knocks on the door. And these people answer the door. Like, oh, you didn't know? Um, they found Maggie dead in her bed at one o'clock this morning. Hmm. You know what I mean? And like my mom had to show up to a door, you know, and be told that her youngest child died from a drug overdose, and it took the nine hours before she even knew that her daughter was gone. She wasn't homeless out on the streets. Yeah. Like she was in a place where she was supposed to be safe, you know? And it's like, and, and like the thing that sucks about all this is like, it don't matter how clean I get. Don't matter how successful I get or how much I do. Like my mom, that, that spark in my mom's eyes are gone. Mm. It's gone. And, and I came to terms that I'll never be able to make that a better. I'm okay with that. I know I'll never be able to make it better. But if I can, like, prevent any, another family from having to go through what my family went through losing my sister, like, that's a win for me. You know what I mean? Because, like, like my sister was another one great, great human being. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And she just decided to do one more. You know, she yeah. didn't, didn't want to 
it wasn't by choice. You know what I mean? Yeah. Thing is, it wasn't by choice. She didn't want to die. 